Well, I'm very grateful to the organizers for inviting me because I've had a very interesting time, but I'm a little bit mystified because I have never previously talked or thought about evolution. And um, this particular talk, I guess, the nearest I get to thinking about evolution is to try and describe what I believe are certain features of human cognition that may be what helps to make us special. And I'm going to particularly talk about theory of mind or mentalizing, which is, I prefer the word mentalizing because it doesn't have the word theory in it. And mentalizing is the ability for us to attribute mental states to others, what they know, think, feel, and desire. And this, of course, helps us to predict what they're going to do. In this picture by Delator, you see both the deceptive use of theory of mind, so this person is going to be deceived, and you also see the cooperative use, because these people here are all cooperating to deceive him, and are apparently sending signals to each other using their eyes. So, as I just said, mentalizing is not just for deception, it also enhances joint action. Because for successful teamwork, particularly when we're all doing different things, we need to keep track of the current knowledge, intentions and beliefs of the others in the team. And the key test of theory of mind, I think originally proposed by Dennett, was the ability to handle false beliefs. And this is the famous Salian task, and these are the original dolls that were used in this task, where Sally has the false belief that her marble is in this basket because she doesn't know that Anne has moved it into her box. So you predict what Sally will do on the basis of this false belief. And it's now well established that children around the age of four can pass this task, and it seems to be relatively independent of culture. But this is a form of explicit mentalizing, because at this age, the children not only track the beliefs of others, but are aware of the differences in beliefs. And when they do this task, they will tell you why Sally is looking in the wrong place. And there are many imaging studies of explicit mentalizing using stories, cartoons, animations, as illustrated here. And remarkably, a very consistent set of brain regions seem to be activated when you do explicit theory of mind tasks. Medial prefrontal cortex, temporal pole around the amygdala, superior temporal sulcus near the temporoparietal junction. This, I think, is more specific to the cartoon task. And probably the cerebellum is involved, but we never talk about that. <laughs> and obviously, this is some sort of a system. We don't really know, and I would presume that these different components in the system do slightly different things, but they all have to work together. And I could tell you what I think they do, but we don't really have time. And I'm going to concentrate on what medial prefrontal cortex might be involved with. But as you might expect, this is actually a Bayesian system. Um, the priors are probably in the temporal pole. 
And the prediction areas, we have lots of evidence now, are reflected in activity in TPJ. But of course, we now know that there's also what I like to call implicit mentalizing, which I'll show you a bit about. So adults, at least automatically and probably unconsciously, take account of the knowledge of intentions of others. And we now know that infants, now down to the age of about seven months, seem to have expectations about the belief of an agent based on that agent's false belief. And this can be measured by things like looking time. And it's also claimed, which you've briefly heard in previous talks, that maybe mentalizing can even happen in non-human animals such as the corvids. So this is an example of an experiment demonstrating that we automatically represent the goals of another person when working together with them, although not in this case directly cooperating. So this is a choice reaction time task, beloved by cognitive psychologists. And there are two cues. There's the color of the ring, which you probably can't quite see, but this is a green ring and this is a red ring. And the task is to press the left button when you see the red ring and the green button and the right button when you see the green ring. And the direction that the finger points in is irrelevant but of course it interferes. So if you have to press the left button because the green ring is there and the finger is pointing at the right button, you are slowed down. So this is the data here. This is when there's conflicting cues and this is when there are consistent cues. And this is a single person doing the choice reaction time task. But you can then do it as a go-no-go -go task. So you still have a single person, but they only have to do half the task. So you say, right, press the left button whenever you see the red ring and ignore what else happens, and then the interference disappears. And the interesting part of this paradigm discovered by Natalie Sabance, who you see here, was that if you bring in a second person to do the other half of the task, so this person is doing exactly the same task as here. They press the left button when they see a red ring. This person presses the right button when they see a green ring. The interference comes back. So the mere presence of somebody else doing the other half of the task seems to reactivate the representation of what they're doing in your mind which interferes with your performance. So in that sense it's automatic. You don't seem to be able to stop yourself from doing this. So you seem automatically to be representing the goal of another person. This is a recent demonstration that we automatically track the knowledge of others, as adults again. So this is a typical point of view task. Normally, the way this task would be done, you would say, you can see this room with dots on the walls. You can ask the question, how many dots can you see? And the answer would be two. How many dots can she see? And the answer would be one. But the new twist in this paradigm was that they didn't ask anything about what she can see. They simply asked, how many dots can you see? And when you can see the same number of dots as the avatar, that's fine. When the avatar sees a different number of dots from you, that interferes slows down your ability to say how many dots you can see, which doesn't happen if there's a stick of wood in the room or, if it, hopefully, if the avatar has their head in a brown paper bag. <laughs> so the mere fact that there's somebody else with different knowledge from you interferes with your performance. And they've gone on to show that this effect is automatic in the sense that cognitive load, making you do a working memory task at the same time, doesn't affect this interference. The interference is still just as great. So you seem automatically to be tracking the knowledge of others when it's different from your own. 
And this is the very recent stuff from Kovach et al. in Budapest, showing that both adults and infants of seven months seem to automatically track the beliefs of others. And this is rather complicated, but, and there are a number of different conditions, but here we have a Smurf, presumably a Hungarian Smurf, who is watching the paradigm. A ball appears and is hidden behind the screen, and it stays there. Then the Smurf goes away. Then the ball rolls from behind the screen, and then the Smurf comes back in this condition. So the Smurf has the false belief that the ball is still behind the screen. The screen is then raised, and sometimes there's no ball present, and sometimes there is a ball present even though it's rolled away. So obviously you are, both children and adults are surprised when the ball is present when you've seen it roll away, measured by looking time in the case of the infants or reaction time in the case of the adults. But the extraordinary result is that this effect is reduced if the Smurf has the false belief that the ball is present. So if you know that the ball is absent but the Smurf believes that the ball is present, this interacts with your beliefs about the world and you respond more rapidly when the ball is present even though you didn't expect it. So if, if, this is a, if these results can be accepted, then it would seem to me that implicit mentalizing is actually sufficient for enabling the successful joint action which I mentioned at the beginning, where you need to keep track of the girls' knowledge and beliefs of the other people you are involved with. So the, the question I want to address for the rest of the talk, really, is what is added by explicit mentalizing? And I guess I have to say what... And so the example I gave is that the four-year-old children not only can tell you why Sally has a false belief, so that's, they can explicitly... They can reflect upon and tell you what it is that's um, in her mind that's creating her behaviour. And I think explicit mentalizing is an example of metacognition which I define as the ability to reflect upon cognitive processes associated with perception and action in self and others. So what is metacognition in relation to action good for? Reflecting on action. It's certainly not... It doesn't seem to be very helpful in actually controlling the action because typically reflection upon simple actions occurs after the choice has been made, as in the Libet experiment and in some of Janeray's experiments, you find you've reached the rod before you will realize that that's what you were supposed to be doing. Maybe it's important in complex decisions, and we have this very nice experiment, but slightly controversial experiment by Dax, DeHoos and colleagues, where they show that people can make better complex decisions about, say, which car to buy when you have to take into account 12 variables if they're prevented from thinking about making this, the, the decision. And another nice experiment from Petra Johansson colleagues showing that actually we're not very good. We, we, we certainly are prepared to reflect upon our actions, but we're not necessarily very accurate at it. And what he showed was that, I mean, there are a couple of experiments now, but there's one where people in the supermarket were given two jams to taste, and they had to indicate which one they preferred, and then on about 20% of the trials, through sleight of hand, they were handed back the jam that they hadn't chosen and said, why did you like this one better than the other? And again, about 70% of the time, they did not notice that it had been switched and proceeded to explain why they liked this jam, which is actually the one that they hadn't chosen. So there are all sorts of reasons for thinking that reflection on action and choice and decision 
doesn't seem to be very helpful. So obviously what I want to do now is to say why I think it is helpful and why it does seem to be this ability to reflect upon actions and later on perceptions is particularly relevant to the extraordinary extent to which humans socially interact and cooperate. So what I'm going to suggest is that reflection on action has social consequences. It can generate a feeling of agency and responsibility for the self and for others. So we respond, interestingly, when we make a mistake, certain bits of the brain become active, and the same bits of the brain come active when we see somebody else making a mistake. And this is a sort of basis for deciding whether or not people are responsible for their actions. And in typical trust games, you can show that altruistic punishment is only applied to the people we think are responsible for their actions, not those who are just reading the instructions from a sheet. And of course, altruistic punishment of this kind is critical for keeping social cooperation going. It also, reflecting upon our actions, has social consequences because it permits the discussion of motivations and strategies for decision. And discussions about decision-making, or at least instructions about decision-making, actually affect people's future behavior, presumably because they're changing the Bayesian priors, but we won't go into that. And this is an experiment from Vos and Jonathan Schuller, where one group of students read a passage from Francis Crick saying, most rational people now recognize that free will is an illusion. Another group read another passage from Francis Crick about the nature of consciousness. They were then given an arithmetic test on which it was rather easy to cheat. And the people who had been told that free will was an illusion were significantly more likely to cheat than the others. My interpretation is that the experience of acting freely in this situation involved deciding whether to cheat or whether to act fairly. And believing that free will was an illusion would provide a justification for cheating on the grounds if I have no free will, then I can't help but behave socially, which means that these students had not been to a lot of lectures on social cognition saying that actually the default is to behave um, socially. So, and hence, they were using this reasoning to deny a role for reason in their behavior. Another recent example is about willpower. It's rightly believed that willpower, exerting willpower is rather like doing some um, difficult physical task, willpower is like a muscle, you can tire it out. And there are sort of experiments where you have to sit next to a bowl of chocolates for a half an hour or something, and then subsequently it's shown that you're less persistent on various executive tasks. And what's suggesting that your willpower has been depleted, it's sometimes called ego depletion. What these people have recently shown is again, this can be altered by talking about what sort of processes are going on. So group one were told, yes, willpower is like a muscle, too much exertion and it tires. Group two were told exertion would actually increase the strength of willpower, and these instructions again affected their behavior. So the people in group two did not show diminished self-control after the depleting experience. In fact, they showed enhanced self-control. So this is another example about how talking to people about our experiences of actions and decisions actually can change these in the future. So through our attempts to monitor our actions, we can justify our behavior to others. And through discussions with others, we can develop group, cultural, perhaps norms for making choices. And our understanding of concepts like free will and willpower have cultural aspects acquired through discussions with others. 
and such discussions, I am claiming, depend upon metacognition, our ability to reflect upon our actions, and communication to discuss their origin with other people. <coughs> so what else is metacognition good for? It also allows us, of course, to reflect upon sensation, and it thus permits the discussion of sensory experiences as well as the experience of action. And what's the value of sharing our sensory experiences? The question I want to ask, and I will obviously answer, is can the sensation of two people can be combined to achieve optimal perception through discussion? And this is modelled on a very clever experiment by Ernst and Banks, showing that people, a single individual combines information from two modalities, in this case, touch and vision, in a Bayesian optimal way. So this is the task of, there's a um, robot force generator here and a screen here. So you can feel a bar and you can see a bar and you have to say how wide it is. And due to these manipulations, you can actually produce discrepancies between what you see and what you feel. And this is, and typically vision dominates. And this is the threshold here for the tactile the ability to distinguish between bits of bars. And here we have the visual abilities. And this is the, the normal case. So this is vision as it normally occurs, this is touch as it normally occurs, and when they're combined, you simply go with the vision. because it's. But you can actually add noise to the visual signal. Here's the noise. And the more noise you add, obviously the worse you get if you just present the visual signal, that's these things here. Remember, if you just have the touch signal, you're going along here. And the interesting point is in this region in particular here, where if you could present vision and touch, you actually do better than either vision on its own or touch on its own. And to some extent here too. And what they can show is that the degree to which you do better is precisely predicted by an optimal Bayesian combination where you weight the signals on the basis of how much noise there is in them, so you give more weight to the less noisy signal. So this is a Bayesian optimum combination of signals from two different modalities. So our question was simply, can, this, can you demonstrate the same thing, except that rather than having one person and two modalities, you have two people and one modality? And this was run by Bahadur Barami, who essentially made this experiment happen. So you have two people sitting at right angles to each other. They're presented the same visual signal, and then they have to make decisions about it. So this is the task. This is a fairly standard psychophysics task, which I have to learn by heart. This is a two-interval, force-choice, oddball, contrast detection task. <laughs> If you give this to people on their own, they're extremely bored, and two experiments on this task will be typically reported with a, in a paper which has four authors who are also the four subjects. <laughs> if you have two people doing it together, they think it's marvelous and exciting. So we can revolutionize psychophysics in this way. So the task is, in each interval, you see six Gabor patches, which are these stripy things. In one of the intervals, one of them is an odd one out because the stripes are slightly more contrasting. And you can vary the difficulty by the difference in contrast between the odd ball and the others. And your task is to say which interval 
had the oddball in. You don't have to say where it is, you simply have to say which interval it is a carrion. They both made an individual decision. If they disagreed, then they had a joint discussion and came up with a joint answer. This is the sort of data you get. So this is the probability that the signal was in the second interval. This is the contrast difference in the two sides. So this side, there's a very obvious contrast in the first interval. And this side, there's a very obvious contrast difference in the second interval. This is where the, the contrast difference is sort of zero. And you typically get this psychophysical curve. And the steeper the curve, the more sensitive you are to the change in contrast. And these are two pairs. So this is one pair. The blue and the yellow are the individual subjects. And the red is the joint decision. And you can see that the red is better because it's steeper. And these are two subjects who are actually much less sensitive than those two, so they have shallower curves, but the red joint decision is still steeper than the shallow curves. And this is the real data showing that two heads are indeed better than one. So in fact, this is the performance in terms of sensitivity of the diamond. This is the performance of the best member of each pair across the whole experiment. Now, I think this is quite interesting, because if you have a competitive situation, then the best result will be the result of the best person in the competition. What we're showing is in a cooperative situation, you can get a best result that is better than the best person in the group. So you can obviously ask the question, what do the subjects actually do to resolve their discrepancy? They could toss a coin to decide who they would choose. They could find out through learning that one of them is better than the other and always choose the better one. Or, which is what we think we've shown they do, is that they discuss each other, with each other and decide which of them is more confident on this trial and choose the most confident person on each trial, which we call weighted confidence sharing. And this is, so rough, this is what's roughly happening. One person says it's in the first, I'm not sure. The second one says it was in the second interval, I'm very sure. And you can demonstrate, if you are a clever mathematician like Peter Latham, that this would be the Bayesian optimum solution which is the sum of the two sensitivities divided by two to the half. And this is roughly speaking how you get to this result. So this is the typical psychophysical signal detection type algorithm. This is the practical situation in which this kind of discussion is very important, which is where you have two referees deciding whether or not the ball crossed the goal line. One referee has quite a tight discrimination ability and he sees this difference and the other referee is not so good and has a broader, uh, a more noisy thing and he sees this difference. And the weighted confidence sharing says that all you can report to each other is essentially the ratio of the mean to the standard deviation, what psychologists would call the z-score. And the result of this is that if you have a rock very good person, you can be pulled down, as I will show you. In the Within a single brain, it's almost certainly the case, or it seems to be the case, that you can, they can make their optimum decision using both the distance and the standard deviation separately, which does better. But you can predict which model is correct. So this is the benefit, that is to say, the performance of the diet compared to the performance of the better one. This is how the relative performance of the two people. So at this end, they're both equally good. At this end, one of them is much worse than the other. If you toss a coin, you're obviously going to get the average of the two sensitivities. If you choose the best person, 
you're going to get whatever the best person says on each trial. Actually, I, I can, yes, so that's the tossing the coin, choosing the best person. This is weighted confidence sharing, where if they're relatively equal, you can do better than the best person. But if they're relatively unequal, you can actually be pulled down by the bad person giving confident reports. And this is the sort of super possibility where you can, the subjects can tell each other not only their confidence, but their means and standard deviations, when you would never go below the best person. This is the data from the first experiment. It clearly rules out this model and this model, but it doesn't distinguish between these two because they were all too similar to each other. So we did a second experiment where surreptitiously we added noise to the screen of one of the participants so to make them much worse, although this was done on different trials, so sometimes one was worse, sometimes the other was worse. And the results are very clear, so when there was no noise, you got the advantage. When there was an equal amount of noise for both subjects, you got the advantage. But when there was unequal noise, you lost the advantage. And when you do the research, I think it's just some remark about we should, it's better to avoid the advice of confident but incompetent teammates. And when you plot the data, it's very clearly fitting the weighted confidence sharing model. It's going below the optimum at this point. I think this, this group here was interesting because during the training phase, one of them decided the other was no good and said, I'm not going to take any account of what you say. So they didn't show this disadvantage. Now, as the usually evil referees pointed out to us, there's a confound in this experiment because they have communication, but they also get feedback. And which of these was important? So we did another experiment where they either had the communication and no feedback, or they had feedback and no communication. Again, the results were clear. No communication, you don't get the advantage, and you're below the optimum. With no feedback, you get the advantage, and you reach the optimum. So in other words, Two people can gain a more accurate picture of the world by discussing with each other, even without getting any feedback as to whether they're right or not, which I interpreted as showing what I knew all the time, that if Uta and I agree on something, it must be true. <laughs> so through social interaction, two or more people can create a more accurate picture of the world than the best on their own. And this depends on the ability to introspect on their own performance, metacognition, and to convey this experience to each other, communication. So obviously you want to know, what did they actually say to each other? Now this was done by Christian Tulen and Ricardo Fusaroli in Denmark, which involved processing 20 hours of video, which in which what they actually said was recorded. This is the sort of things people, this is an example of what they were saying. One pair was saying at the beginning of the experiment, and they, there are various interesting features. First of all, there's a tendency to repeat the kinds of words that each of them use. So he says, I saw nothing. I didn't see anything either. Bearing in mind, this is translated from Danish. And then they say, well, we don't really know what's going on at all. And then they sort of negotiate and say, well, yes, we must actually put ourselves together and actually perform this task to please the experimenter. And what is clear from these data is that what happens is that the scales emerge for assessing and comparing confidence. So this is just examples from one of the groups 
where they have at one extreme, they have things to do with being sure and kind of 50-50. I saw it well, I think I saw it, I didn't see it, I didn't uh, go to that one. I see nothing, I only saw a blank. This is another example, slightly different, not 100% sure, 55% sure, not quite sure, unsure, too unsure, and other things that I can't read out. Um, what is interesting is that every pair produces a slightly different version. So it's as if they're generating a, a novel tool for talking to each other about their confidence in this situation, which is, of course, a completely novel and weird situation that they're in. The other interesting thing is that they very rarely used numbers. You might say, right, we'll come up with a scheme, and I say 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, but that didn't happen. They, they used words like this. And we also have, there's certainly evidence that their ability to produce a convergent scale relates to the, to the group advantage. So this is a global linguistic convergent score, which is a sort of type token ratio of the number of phrases about confidence they use, the commonest ones, over the whole set. So this is the, the extent to which they produce a relatively small set of words describing confidence. And the better they do this, the greater the advantage of the group compared to the single individuals. And there's also a local convergence. The, the greater the extent they tend to repeat what the other person said on each trial, also you get a similar result, although not quite so strong, and they're both really measuring the same thing. So each pair develops a linguistic strategy for communicating their confidence in what they saw, and as a result, the perception of the dyad becomes more accurate. Interestingly, the confidence sharing also improves individual perception. So in that experiment that I described to you also, at this point here, you have a measure of how good the individuals are at detecting the oddball. And you can analyze that performance. You have to use, to get a measure of the slope, you need a lot of trials. So you have 444 trials in total, and you have to pull at least 64 trials to get a nice measure of slope. So this is slightly odd, what I will show you because it doesn't show you how much learning happens in the first 64 trials. It starts from that point, if you like. And this is the result. This is people working on their own across time. This is people interacting. This is, this is their individual responses before they do the discussion. And you can see that during, in the first 64 trials, these individuals' performances considerably increased compared to what would have happened if they were working on their own. And even more striking, and we don't really understand it, is in the case where they were discussing and not getting any feedback, this improvement of individual performance keeps on going. So not only does discussing your experience, sensory experiences with other people improve group performance, it also improves individual performance. And I say, this depends upon having an explicit representation of the error in the sensory signal, this is your confidence. So in this case, this is metacognition allowing a report of confidence. And what I'm suggesting is that in this case, metacognition gives, the advantage that metacognition gives the implementation of joint action is it goes beyond just the fact that two people can lift a heavier table than one person. Through reflecting upon and discussing their experiences, groups can actually achieve more accurate models of the world, and this, in a sense, is what science is all about. And I would very much agree with Alison that we're all scientists all the time, except when we become politicians. Um, 
Here are some examples of mechanisms of metacognition. This is the standard signal detection model. So this is the noise, this is the signal plus noise. You set a criteria here to decide whether you, what you saw was noise or signal, and the optimum position for the criteria is midway between these two peaks, and the green bit is the hits and the red bit is the false positives. Now, the confidence rating, the, the metacognition is instead of asking the question, was there a signal present or not, you ask the question, was your choice correct or not? So you have to reflect upon your ability. In this case, you now have two criteria. Obviously, right out at the edges, you can be very confident that there was a signal here and it was not a signal here. So you would say, yes, I'm sure I was right. Whereas in the middle, that's where you're unsure because it's there close together. But to set your criteria here, it's not sufficient just to know the magnitude of the signal. You have to represent the precision of the signal as well. And that's a sort of maybe an alternative way of thinking about metacognition because it's actually a representation of your representation of the signal. And we know a little bit about the neural basis of metacognition using the sorts of technique I just showed you. This is from Stan de Haan's lab in Paris looking at people with frontal lobe lesions. And luckily you can't see this, so you have to believe what I tell you, which is basically that the effect of the frontal lesion is, has, a, it has a bigger effect on your subjective report of visibility than it does have on objective performance in terms of forced choice. So it, the frontal lesion appears to affect your subjective report more than your objective abilities to make the distinction. <coughs> this is a study from my colleague Stephen Fleming who measured metacognitive abilities in the way I've just shown you in a large series of people and was able to produce a set of people who were matched for signal detection ability but varied in metacognitive ability. So they were equally good at saying whether the signal was present or not, but some of them are better at knowing when they were right. And this is a structural study, so what he found is that the better you are at metacognition, the greater the density of grey matter in these bits right at the front of the brain, broaden area 10, which in spite of talks yesterday, I would like to claim is something rather special in the brain of humans compared to other animals. And this is the relationship between metacognition and the volume of this of grey matter in area 10. And there's another recent, very recent study from Janet Metcalf um, looking at metacognition of agency where they do a clever trick where they can separate out your feeling of being in control from your level of performance because usually these two things are confounded. So they have a situation where you can have good performance but you don't feel you're in control. And again, they find if you're asked to report on your sense of agency, there's more activity in BA10 again, very close to where Steve Fleming found his changes, even though this is a very different task. And lastly, I want to suggest more basically why collaboration, which is so essential for human interactions, might depend upon metacognition. So this is an economic game invented by Jean-Jacques Rousseau called the stag and rabbit hunt, in which if you hunt a rabbit, you'll get a small reward whatever the other person does. 
But if you hunt a stag, as long as both of you hunt a stag, you'll get a big reward. Because if you hunt the stag and the other person hunts the rabbit, you get nothing. And this is different from the prisoner's dilemma because catching a stag is a, what they call a payoff dominant strategy, whereas the rabbit is the risk dominant strategy. So it does definitely pay you to collaborate and catch a stag. And in Wacko Yoshida's analysis of this, she points out that there's some sort of recursion is involved. Because I should only chase the stag if I believe you will chase the stag. But I know that you will only chase the stag if you believe that I will chase the stag. And I know that you know that I will only chase the stag if I believe that you believe that I will chase the stag. So you have, a, you have to... Rep I am representing your representation of my representation of your representation. You can get into an infinite recursion here. You can solve that by Bounded rationality, I think it's called, where you basically have to have a, an estimate of how recursive you think the other person is. And if they're sufficiently recursive, then you will choose to collaborate. And using this neat mathematical model, they were able to ask in people who were playing this game whether regions of the brain that where activity went up and down with these parameters. And again, in medial prefrontal cortex, the activity here related to the uncertainty you had about your partner's degree of recursion. So I think this is an example of another example of metacognition, which in this case is critical for deciding whether or not to collaborate with somebody. So my final speculations, metacognition allows people to share their experiences, as we heard this morning. Metacognition, I'm claiming, is a recently evolved form of cognition instantiated in the most recently evolved bit of prefrontal cortex, which we might argue about. And metacognition enables optimally unique human social interactions. And these interactions are what can create culture and cultural differences. So thank you very much. This is, just if anybody wonders, this is where Aarhus is. This is my various collaborators, in particular Peter Latham, who did the maths. These two who did the linguistic analysis, Bahadur Barame, who without whom nothing would have happened at all, and Dan Bang, who is somewhere in the audience here. And I thought I should just show you, because he's been mentioned so many times, this may or may not be a picture of the Reverend Thomas Bayes, but this is definitely his equation. Thank you very much.